Good morning, Docs of Church. Today's scripture reading will be coming from Daniel 12, verses 1 through 10. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some of the everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting content. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on the bank of this stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of those wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, today we're finishing up our series on the, the book of Daniel, and we're in chapters 11 and 12 today. Uh, this will be the, as we're ending this series, next week we'll begin our summer series, which is going to be on the fruit of the Spirit. I'm really looking forward to that. I hope you are too. Um, and as we're looking at this, these two chapters today, as we're finishing up the book of Daniel, I, I was thinking about this week about how there's really a, a myth uh, that's accepted as common knowledge today. Uh, there's a myth that's accepted as common knowledge today, and that is that, that everyone of true intelligence, everyone who's smart, everyone who knows anything, uh, knows that the claims of Christianity and the Bible have been proven untrue. Uh, maybe there's some morals in there that can help us, but the claims of the Bible being the only way, the, the, the fact that there is a God and there is the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the fact that he created the whole world, the fact that, that we are created by him and for him, the, the, the truth that he is involved in our everyday life. There's this, this mythology around us. It's the air that we breathe that is around us that says that everyone who is a true intelligence knows that's not true. Everyone who's really smart, everyone who's educated, everyone who really knows what's going on knows that that's not true. But imagine this. Uh, since Jamestown, uh, Virginia was, uh, was founded, that's about 1607, uh, around 400 years have passed. So there's about 400 years of American history. Now imagine if there was a document that predated the, the founding of Jamestown 
And it laid out in this document in incredible detail things that were going to happen in our government and the rulers of our government from the founding of Jamestown to today. Nostradamus, that some people claim that Nostradamus and other people have, have predicted some events, but imagine if the major events of American history down to a T were predicted and laid down in a document before any of that ever began. Well, that's what we have here in this section of Daniel. In chapter 11, Daniel in the 6th century BC lays out the history of the Middle East, of the Near East, from 600 BC to around 200, the 6th century to the 2nd century before Christ. In incredible detail. The events show that Israel's homeland, or what he calls the, the beautiful land, will be harassed and caught in a long struggle between two, between, excuse me, <clears throat> between two powers. That was gross. In verse 2, we don't have time to go through it line by line, but in verse 2, Daniel predicts, who's a part of the Persian Empire at this time, he predicts the fall of the Persian Empire. In verses 3 and 4, he then predicted that the next power in the whole world would come upon the scene, and that's Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great accomplished in six years what nobody ever had before. His, and perhaps ever since, his empire grew incredibly fast. He conquered so many other countries and cities. His power went from... India all the way to Macedonia or Greece. It was incredible. His power comes on the scene, and then he dies at a young age, and then his empire is split into four different powers. In verses 5 and through 35 of Daniel 11, it centers on the conflict that is surrounding the glorious land or the land of Israel. So stick with me here. I promise you, we won't be in the, in the weeds all day long, but you need to hear this. So what's going to happen is the, the Alexander's empire is split into four different powers, and there's a northern power and a southern power that surround Israel. In the north, there are the Seleucids, that's Syria, and in the south, there's the Ptolemaic empire, and that is around Egypt. And what he describes through verse 5 through 35 is between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, how they're going to fight back and forth over the next 400 years. And then it's going to turn in verse 21 in the middle of that section, and he's going to zero in on one particular vile king, Antiochus Epiphanes. If you're writing notes, I'm sure you already know how to spell it. Antiochus Epiphanes. And in verse 28, he's going to invade Jerusalem. He's going to loot the temple. In verse 31, he massacres the Jews. He abolishes the daily sacrifice. And he defiles the temple by erecting inside the temple an altar to Zeus, right there in the temple. That's called the, desolate, the abom abomination of desolation. This is how detailed this history gets, just to stick with me. In verses 6 through 10, you don't, we're not gonna, you don't have to read along. I'm just going to give you a, a Cliff Notes version of what happens in verses 6 through 10. It, he describes that a bigamous marriage alliance will arise between the northern and the southern kingdom. This is like something that's on HBO. Between the, between the northern and the su southern kingdom. This man, this king, he's a proposed to uh, try to unite the nations, these two empires, and bring peace. And, and he's offered... Uh, 
the daughter of the other king and he takes her. The only problem is he's already been married. So he puts that woman off to the side. He marries this other woman. And then he decides in the middle of that, I don't like it anymore. He breaks off that marriage. He goes back to the first wife. This is when it really takes a real HBO turn here. Then this first wife, who he's now back with, she steps in and she says, I don't want to be in this power struggle anymore, in this terrible love triangle. And she convinces him to murder his second wife and her, and her kid. And then in the south, this is in the northern kingdom, then in the south, the brother of the woman who's the queen who's been murdered, he regains some power and he decides he's going to head up to the northern kingdom and attack them to find retribution and he pillages it. And then he kills the first wife. Then the northern kingdom again regains its power and then they march down to the southern kingdom and it even goes into such detail that it says that the king that marches down, then his, he would die and his sons continue on his campaign into Egypt. That's how detailed, that's just verses six through 10. That's how detailed this passage gets. And then in chapter 12, Daniel, it cuts back to Daniel and he has just had this vision and he's seen all this stuff play out. And he tells us, he, he says, I was confused. I didn't understand what was going on. And I asked the, these, these three great angels that are left there after he has this vision, he asked them, what does all this mean? And then the, the answer that the angel gives him says, basically, he's like, just sit back, watch all this play out, and know that your future is secure. And then the book ends. It's kind of a weird way for the book to end. And that leaves us asking a couple of questions about this vision that Daniel had. And it leaves us asking a couple of questions maybe about the, this whole book of Daniel, or at least the second half of Daniel. I mean, the first half has the lion and the lion's den, and it has the, the, the don't bow down to the statue and all those things, the fiery furnace. Like, man, those are cool stories that are awesome in Sunday school. But this second half gets a little bit weirder and it leaves us asking a couple of questions. With Daniel, we ask, hey, what does this mean? And the second question is, and what's the point? Like, why did you show this to Daniel? If Daniel's left wondering what this means, and why would you show it to us? What does this mean, and what's the point of all this? And here's what I'm going to say is the point of this as we go through today. I'm going to say the point of this passage, the point of God showing this vision to Daniel, even the vision that Daniel doesn't fully understand, and he's left asking questions, what does this mean? The point of it is that those who follow God can have faith in times of exile and discouragement because our God has it all in hand. Those who follow God can have faith in times of exile and discouragement. Exile is whenever you are separated and you, don't, you feel like you're lost without hope. When you're removed from any hope or any sense of home, whenever you are feeling like you're in a sense of exile and you're discouraged, that we can follow God and have faith because our God has it all in hand. How does it teach us this? Well, first of all, we see that we can have faith because God knows the future. Look at how detailed this prophecy is in chapter 11. 
It goes on, and I don't know what in your Bible looks like, but it goes on for over two pages in my Bible of small print that I have to have glasses to read in very minute detail about what's going to happen between the 6th and 2nd century BC in a place that I've never visited or been. He goes into incredible detail about what was going to happen, and it's so detailed that worldly-minded scholars who study this passage and try to figure out what is the point of this, what they say is, well, this couldn't have been a prophecy. It couldn't be a prophecy because it goes into, into too fine a de- detail about what happened. So therefore, it had to have been written after the fact. It had to be somebody who wrote in the name of Daniel or, or had the name of Daniel but wasn't alive in the 6th century B.C. They wrote it after the 2nd century. So they could say, hey, they could look back in the history books and like cheat off history and then call it a prophecy and then publish it. That's the only way it could have been in detail. They say it can't be. But we who have a, a godly mind can say, who, a God, we who have a God who is all-knowing know that nothing in the past, present, or future is hidden to him. We don't always understand his prophecies or his predictions, his messages beforehand, because we're not all-knowing. Can you imagine Daniel writing this, this stuff down in such incredible detail uh, he had to be thinking like, am I just making all this up? And the people who read it had to be thinking, are you just making all this up? Are you purporting to, to, to forecast 400 years in the future in, in this type of language about what's exactly going to happen? He didn't even understand his own visions. And we, as we read the Bible, even looking back today, we often don't understand much of what we read, right? I don't know how many of you guys have read through Daniel as we preach through it, but at least some of us have to be left saying, man, I don't understand all of this. And in fact, I'll say this, if you purport to say that you understand fully 100% about what Daniel says or Revelation or Ezekiel or other parts of the Bible or the whole Bible, then I'm going to instantly distrust you because we are not all knowing. We lack perspective. We are finite. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot of ways that we can grow, but we are limited and we are finite in our being. We cannot understand. And that humbles us. It humbles us to admit that we don't fully understand and we don't fully know what this is saying or any passage in Scripture is saying. There are some things we know for certain, but some things there are clouds around. And even if you think you know, we should approach with humility saying, I think this is what this is saying, but I am finite and limited in my knowledge and perspective. I am not God, only he knows. Imagine how that played out. Daniel sat down and forecast over 400 years what was going to happen. It looked like gobbledygook. It looked silly. It looked ridiculous until as the Jews were reading it, as it starts to play out and they're saying, oh my goodness. This is exactly what's happening. As they got to the end of this, of this second century and they looked back and said, look at all that happened. Daniel predicted it all. God spoke to us all what was going to happen. And you know what that did for them? In Daniel's time, as they started seeing it played out and over the centuries as they saw it played out and as they looked back and as we look back, it should give us confidence. As we look back and we see God's fulfilled prophecies, it should give us confidence that if what God has said will come to pass, then he must know what he's talking about. And don't we want to find somebody who knows what they're talking about? Don't you? 
Have you lived long enough to realize that you don't always know what you're talking about? I'm a parent and I can't, I am still flabbergasted in my brain the things I make up on the fly. And I think, were my parents doing this? The smartest people in our nation, in our world, can't, oftentimes can't seem to figure, I saw, uh, I don't know if you saw a week or two ago, AT&T announced that they were going to now sell uh, Warner, which they had bought for like something like $8 billion, and now they're selling it for $4 billion. They bought it with a big plan, super smart people, had a big plan of how this is going to fulfill their plan, and then a few, few years later, literally a few years later, they're saying, well, we messed up, we're going to take a $4 billion loss and let's move on. That's the brightest and smartest that we have. Our politicians don't know what's going on. You don't know what's going on. Nobody in the heck knows what's going on, but God does. So shouldn't we trust and study and seek to find out what he has to say more than anybody else? Shouldn't I be more concerned about what he has said than what I think about my life and what I think about my family and what I think about where we are going? It it should humble us, but it gives us hope. I read this uh, quote by a guy named Trimper Longman. He said, for Daniel's audience, God's control of history was positive because it meant things would turn out right in the end. And this knowledge led to joy in the present. If you know that God knows what's going on and you know that he is incredibly trustworthy because he's been proven trustworthy through the centuries that it can give us hope and joy today. You know why? Because as crazy as it sounds to those who are not believers, He has told us and we believe as Christians that this world is not all that there is. And that for all that is wrong in this world is wrong and will be done away with when Jesus Christ returns in glory. And that he alone is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and he will make things right and those who are his will experience joy forever and ever and ever and those who don't will experience eternal separation and torment from God. I mean, our faith says, we don't know exactly what it means, but our faith says that he's returning on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. And I don't know what that means, but I know I'm going to trust that more than anybody else around me. We can have faith in exile. We can have faith in times of discouragement because our God knows the future. But not only that, we can have faith because our God directs the future. He doesn't just know it, though he does. He's predicted, he's told us what's going to happen. Read Revelation, we know somehow what's going to happen till the end of time. But he doesn't just know the future, he directs the future. He doesn't just know the future, he is involved in the history of this world. When you read these chapters, both 11 and 12, but particularly 11, one of the things that stands out is the providential hand of God, oftentimes unseen. The secret, hidden hand of God who is at work. You can see it in one way because in chapter 11 alone, 14 times, it's, it'll say something like this. He, that's the, one of the kings, went to do this or did this or decided to do this, and then it'll say, but blank. He was going to do this, but 
this happened. And you know what happens to that comma? That's God's intervention in life. How many times have you had in your life, like, you were going to do this, but this happened, and then you look back and you see God's hand in it. God's providential hand, not only knowing what is coming, but directing what is going on in the world. He doesn't just watch history, he orchestrates it. He is the great conductor that is conducting history in all of its minutia, in all of its detail, in all of its ways that blow our minds, all the things that are happening at any given time. He's not just sitting back watching it, he is orchestrating it. And that is a mystery that we cannot comprehend and we're not supposed to be able to. You say, well, what about this and what about that? I'm with you, I don't understand. Why did he allow this and what about this? I don't know. But here's what I know, that my God knows the future and my God is orchestrating and directing history. He may not strum every note that is in that orchestra, but he is the conductor that's turning it all into a symphony for his glory. I don't know how that works. And some of you have things that have happened in your life that you wonder, you have tears running down your cheek thinking about them. How could he allow that? And I don't know, but here's the hope that we have as believers that he not only knows what's going on, but he's directing it to his purpose. That for all the heartache and all the pain, that in the end there's joy and he wipes away every tear from our eyes. We have a joy that, as believers that nobody else has because our God is all-knowing and he is all-powerful. And not only that, but he cares and he's intervening and directing the everyday events of life. Should that scare us? Should it anger us? Sometimes it does. But the only thing that we're left to remember is that we are finite and God alone is infinite. And that God alone is righteous and just and we are not. These chapters show us not only that God knows the future and is directing the future, but it says that he's doing so for his glory and for his people. Can you imagine Daniel writing this section? Can you imagine Noah building the ark? Can you imagine Jesus preaching that he is the way, the truth, and the life? And they all look like fools. Because God doesn't play the short game. God's playing the long game. Daniel wrote down this prophecy and he probably looked like a fool when he died, maybe for decades, maybe for centuries, whenever people finally realized, hey, this stuff is coming true. But until then, Daniel looked like a fool. And that's a mark for all those who follow God. Mention Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Mary. Every single person who's followed God has at times looked like a fool because we play the eternal game We're not buying stock for this world, or we shouldn't be. We're not buying stock for this world. We're short on this world, and we're long on eternity. I don't know stocks, but I I hope that was used correctly. 
We're short on this world, this day, this age. And I feel it. I feel the push every day. Get more. I see the stock market. If it's going up, oh man, I'm not a part of that. I see real estate. Like, man, I should have been in that. I feel this pressure. I should be in this. I should, man, I should have more. I should do more. I should experience more. I feel the push and the pressure. But God is short on now and he's long on eternity. And then we know when we believe and we act like our God knows the future and directs the future, then we're short on now and long on eternity. And we're willing to look like fools in the short term for the sake of being his children in the long run. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? That's a verse that almost every Christian in America knows and yet very few live like it's true. What does it profit you if you get that house, if you get those clothes, if you get that spouse, if you get that car? What does it profit you if you're driving a Tesla but yet lose your soul? No offense, Teslas. We can have faith because God knows the future and he's directing the future, but what that really tells us the bottom line is we can have faith because God has it all in hand. That's really what I'm saying. Your God, if you're a Christian, my God as a Christian, my God knows the future and he's directing the future and he's got it all in hand. There is nothing that freaks him out or surprises him. And here's what he has in hand because we see played out through the book of Daniel, we see it played out here in chapter 10, 11, and 12. We see it played out that history is actually, human history is a cosmic war against God. It's a part of a cosmic war against God. Daniel shows us that there are spiritual and physical beings who are opposed to God and that this actually predates human history. That started with the fall of Satan. It was a rebellion against God. So you have Satan and his fallen angels, and you have humankind have now fallen after the garden, and we are all a part of a cosmic war against God. We're not, there's no neutral party. You're on one side or the other. And that all of history, including human history, is a part of a cosmic war against God. And that that war, what we see in Scripture is that that war is the cause of all pain and all misery in this world. And we're caught up in the middle of that. We're caught up in the middle of that just like what you see in chapter 11 is you see you have the northern kingdom that's left over from Alexander and the southern kingdom that's left over from Alexander and they're fighting back and forth and Israel, the, the promised land, is caught in the middle in this war back and forth. And, and we're like that. We're caught in this cosmic war between Satan, the powers of, of evil, and God. And then something happens here in verse 36 of chapter 11. The, the zoom kind of, he's, he's zoomed in on all that's happening in uh, this, the Middle East, around Israel, post-Alexander. He's going all through this deal. And then something changes at verse 36. He's been talking about this Antiochus Epiphanes, which I told you guys about. I'm sure you have in your notes. And he's been talking about him and what a vile and evil king that he was and how he was going to come in and plunder Jerusalem and 
set up a, a is incredibly terrible. He's going to slaughter Jews and he's going to set up this idol to Zeus in the middle of the, of the temple. Then the wording changes in verse 36. And uh, most scholars believe that all of a sudden he stops in the middle of this talking about this one king, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he starts talking about another king who is to come. And that the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify, magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper to the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God with whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortress with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. What we believe that we see here in this section, even down through verse 45, is the emergence at the end of time of one who personifies all that has been against God. We see the anti-God or the anti-Christ emerge here in verse 36. Look at what he describes as the characteristics of this evil king who is the epitome at the end of time. So, So if you picture this, like what Daniel is as a prophet is... He's looking out like this towards the future. If you've ever driven up to the mountains and you drive up to a mountain range, it looks, as you're from afar, it looks like all the mountains are all in a line, like they're all stacked up beside each other, right? Until the more you drive, the more you see, oh, no, that mountain's actually behind that mountain. And the closer you get, you see, right, oh, wow, those mountains are like they were right together, but they're actually miles and miles apart. That's what Daniel is doing, looking to the future. He sees some things that are closer, 6th century to 2nd century BC, and then he sees a further ahead the coming of the end of all times, the Antichrist, the anti-God, who will epitomize the vileness and the evil that he was des- describing in Antiochus Epiphanes. And here at the end of time is what he's describing. And here's what he describes as the characteristics of that anti-God, the anti-Christ. Verse 36, he says, he shall do as he wills. That's interesting. Just put a pin in that. That is a characteristic of the anti-Christ or anti-Christ. He shall do as he wills. Also in verse 36, it says, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He will make himself God. Put a pin in that. He will blaspheme the true God. See that? He shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He will blaspheme the true God. In verse 37, it says, he, shall, he will dis- disregard all gods other than himself. So not only the true God, but he will reject all gods other than himself. He will magnify himself. See that at the end of verse 37? He shall magnify himself above all. That's the characteristic of the Antichrist. 
In verse 39, it says, he will cause great destruction and also see great victories. That's the characteristic of Antichrist. But then we can cheat ahead to verse 45. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. And then it just throws in this. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Period. Move on. This great antichrist which will cause incredible damage and will set himself up as the God of gods and will rule himself, will do exactly as he wills and he will run and it'll look like he is going to destroy everything in his path and he's actually gonna conquer and there'll be no help and no hope. All of a sudden it says, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. The book of Daniel has been showing us that not just that we're caught as human beings, I said before, that we're caught between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, but what the book of Daniel, in fact, all of the Bible and human history as well will tell us and show us is that we're not just caught between these two powers in the cosmic war, but each one of us are on a side. The question is, which side are you on? Did you notice, and here's how you can tell what side you're on. I'm not, I don't just mean like, hey, I'm obviously on God's side. I'm here in church on a Sunday morning instead of at home or asleep or at brunch or wherever you might go. But notice the characteristics of what it means to be anti-God or anti-Christ. Did, you, did that stand out to you when we went through them? Those who are anti-God or anti-Christ do as they will. They're not under the rule and reign of anybody else. They're not under the rule and reign of the king and kings and lord of lords. In true practice, in the way that they live their life, they decide what they're gonna do and what they're not gonna do. Those who are anti-God, anti-Christ, they stand on the throne of their own life and decide, here's where I am going and here's what I will do. I am the king, the boss of my own life. Those who are anti-God, anti-Christ, exalt themselves, just like we read in this passage. They exalt themselves. They make themselves the center of the world, or the center of their world. Those who are anti-God and anti-Christ, they disregard any God over them. I'll have any God other than the one true God as long as that God doesn't exert any authority over me or tell me what to do. As soon as they do, I'm going to throw them off. I will be my own God. They will speak astonishing things against the God of gods. We place ourselves, anti-God, anti-Christ, places ourselves judging God and his ways rather than God judging us in our ways. So that leaves us in a place, not when we see something that we don't understand or that we don't like or why did God allow that? Instead of, instead of, Instead of mourning and feeling a place of mystery and wondering, like, we bring it to God. God, show me what is going on here. God, I trust you. I trust you. Instead, it says, if God allows that, then he can't be God, and I will not worship that God. As if I get to be the judge. As if I get to be the king. And here's another characteristic of anti-God or anti-Christ, is that they are often the ones who look like they are winning in life. 
this Antichrist, he goes out determined to be his own man, his own king, and he goes out and he clasps everything he possibly can and he makes a lot of progress. And it looks like he's the one that's winning in life. I wonder how many of us live by those creeds. I do as I will, I exalt myself, I disregard any God over me. In our culture, as human beings, the air we breathe in and breathe out is anti-God, anti-Christ. The very things that we celebrate in our culture are the, those things that we just described. Aren't those the things that we celebrate in biographies and TV specials? He or she built up their life, achieved such success that nobody had any power over them and they determined their own way. But then the message of this passage is don't be fooled. That doesn't last. There are many who claim belief in the tenets of Christianity but are actually antichrists. Your upbringing, your Bible reading, your church attendance, your belief structure aren't enough to keep you out of the spirit of this age. The spirit of this age is antichrist. The kingdoms of this world are set against the Lord and his, and his Christ, yet scripture tells us that he alone will reign forever and ever. Second Thessalonians 2.8, and then the lawless one, he's talking about the antichrist again, will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The message of Daniel and the message of this whole Bible is that the world and its systems are temporary and they are fragile. Fragile. They crumble. It is in their very nature that they look secure. They look strong. They crumble. It is their very nature. We see that as king after king arises, but they are never able to truly conquer. Jesus alone is the king of kings, and Jesus alone is the Lord of lords. Jesus shows us true life by losing his. He shows us true love by sacrifice. That's what the true kingdom looks like. Not clutching for power, but losing his life and sacrifice his life. Jesus even shows us what it means to be truly living, to be truly a part of God's kingdom by taking on our sin and our treason against him and bearing the wrath of the Father on the cross. Then the last message that we have from this passage is that the only safe place is with him. The passage that DJ read for us in 12, chapter 12, if you look at verses two and three, we have uh, what might be the first mention in the Old Testament or the first mention in the Bible of the fact that some that when we die, you rise again either to fellowship with God or to suffering. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And all those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. 
God has it all in hand, but the only safe place is with him. And you can't think or work yourself out of this broken world system. You must be born into a new one. And that only happens through Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So today, whether you're a believer or not a believer, if you've called the name of Christ, if you carry the label of Christianity for years and years, today I say, run to him. Run to him, run to the true king of kings and the true Lord of lords. Bow to him today and give yourself to him because God alone is all in all and the only safe places within him. Christ is alone, is all in all and the only safe place for today and the future is with him because he knows the future, he's directing the future and he's got it all in hand. That's why the book of Daniel ends. We may be confused about how it happens We may be confused at the moment, but like Daniel, Jesus Christ says to those who are his, go your way for your future is secure in me. And that's what we get to celebrate together as Christians this morning when we take communion. We get to celebrate that no matter what I have done, no matter what anybody else does, no matter how the kingdoms of this world seem to rise in power or fall, no matter what, how, what I tr- see, trusted in before is shaky ground, yet I have found firm ground in the God who is bringing all things to conclusion because Christ alone is all in all. We commit an act of defiance when we take communion. Ever thought about it that way? When you come up today at one of the four stations, if you're a believer in Christ and, and you take the cup with the wafer and the juice in it, by you taking that as you consume it, you're, at, you're committing an act of defiance against this world and its system. You're saying, hey, I'm a part of this world and the system, but Jesus is coming and he's going to redeem all of this. He alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. And I know that he will come and do that again. I know that I will feast with him again in glory and in joy because he came before And I know that I will be with him because I have accepted his sacrifice on my behalf and bowed my knee to him. So as I pray for us, I ask you to come this morning with a sense of gratefulness, a sense of defiance in your heart, maybe a sense of repentance to say, I have bought into the kingdom of this world in these certain ways. Maybe things that have come to your mind. God, help me to repent of those and break free of those and turn to you and live as if you have all, everything, all the future in your hand, because you do. Give me an assurance of that. Give me a fresh assurance of that truth. This morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you've carried the label, maybe you're just kind of seeking and trying to figure this thing out, this is the morning. To not think your way out or work your way out of this world system, but to be born into a new one from above by the spirit of Jesus Christ. Bow your knee to him, run to him this morning. Find somebody, find me, find somebody back in the prayer area. Find anybody who's been up front this morning and say, hey, I wanna know what it means to be a Christian. Please pray with me. Today can be your day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that today is your day, no matter who we are. No matter how much we think that we may be in control, no matter how much we buy into the temporary and crumbling structures of this world, that you alone know the future and are directing the future and you have it all in hand.
God, I pray that you would help us as Christians to live like that and to act like that. Not just to believe it and be able to check it off some sort of card, but to believe it and to the extent that our lives reflect that. And that through that you would beautify your church and glorify your name so the people around us would see what it means to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and not the kingdom of this world. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.